streaming to you from the city of Bombay is this podcast about books and reading the lit pickers it is brought to you by my friend this is dipanjana and with dipanjana is supriya we are a podcast manifested over breakfast where dipanjana and i frequently meet to talk about the books we love and books that set our brains worrying about trends and i feel like the slim volume is a trend again dipanjana Yeah fun fact kind of going back to its roots as it were because the way novels started off and novels are what dominate the publishing industry that we know today uh novels started off as serialized publications in magazines so these chapters would be brought together to make individual volumes and uh initially they were actually not fat things the fat sort of you know bicep builders that we associate with good literature today that's a much later discovery in that sense the original idea was actually slimmer reads i think one of the reasons for that was just that you know ink paper binding hardcover gilt embossed artwork that sort of thing was all expensive so with the sort of you know invention of the paperback as it were fatter books became more cost effective to produce etc cetera, etc cetera. but yes i do think that i see more slim volumes when i'm browsing Yeah. And it's something that's nice to see because in many ways I think slim volumes often feel like they're more reader friendly. Yeah. By the slim volume dear reader, I should tell you that we are talking about the thin book, the novella, the chapbook, the single essay between covers and other things like that. The stuff that when i was a kid i would have ignored in a bookstore mm-hmm. reaching for the fat book instead because one it would give me more bang for my buck mm-hmm. and two it would be something that i could make last longer speaking of bang for buck i was just remembering there was a podcast called rough translation mm. i say was because it's one of the podcasts that uh, got cancelled from npr earlier this year and it has a fantastic episode about reading anna karenina in prison and basically this guy he has to pick up one book and he picks anna karenina because that was the fattest book that he could lay his hand on at that point of time and it worked well for him anyway but you and right. i are not in prison so yeah. we don't need to pick the fattest book right, right now people often say that they'll read you know war and peace when they go to prison or mm-hmm. dostoevsky or whatever which i mean i don't know i would just listen to beyonce if i was in prison <laughs> if i had a choice yeah definitely way right? over yeah but also day. my habits and the habits of other paying readers i suspect have changed over time spending money is not the luxury now so much as having the time to read a book mm. and i sense that part of what has brought the slim volume back into publishing worldwide including in india is that uh, people are now reaching for things that they can maybe finish in an afternoon or over a weekend so it's something that i often wonder about because on one hand there is of course that fabulous temptation that you're talking about that i'll be able to finish this in a day say or a few hours even if it's that slim but at the same time somehow books that finish quickly they have to carry the burden of being far more thought provoking than books that you can spend more time over and that will unfold themselves slowly i feel like memorable slim volumes are the ones that leave you with things and ideas buzzing in your head whereas the chances of being disappointed by that slim novel 
which has just, you know, you sort of raced through it and it's got left you with nothing to sort of sink into later. I find that really frustrating. I agree. And I think that that may be why novellas are often places where we can see writers practicing their art at its finest. Mm. I've been having really busy Monday to Friday schedules over the last couple of months. So on the weekends, I'm looking for something that I can actually just absorb and that will Mm. break me out of the routine. But I don't have to be longing to get back to when I'm like back at my desk at 8am on Monday, you know. So this weekend I read... uh, a single man, Christopher Isherwood's uh, mm. novella, which I think people may know because Tom Ford adapted it to film, right? Yeah. With Colin Firth. What a beautiful film, by the way. Beautiful film. And the book that it comes from is full of beauty. It feels like Isherwood, always an artist, really gave himself permission to like juice it up with yeah. as much elegance and irony and emotion mm. as he could. This is also a famously political form, right? Yes, very much so. What you were talking about, this sense of wanting to have something that you can uh, read without without feeling like you're abandoning something when you return to routine. I felt that so much when I read Department of uh, Speculation by Jenny Offal. Ooh. Jenny Offal writes huh, slim volumes again. Germans kind of tend to do that, right? I love them for that. Yes. Can you think of a fat book by a German? I mean, there's the Robert Musil book, right? The Man Without Qualities. But he never finished it. No. So like, not only can you not finish reading fat German <laughs> books, you can't even finish writing them. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a service to the reader. Yeah. But Jenny Offal, Department of Speculation, is a fragmentary novel. Oh, lovely. So like a great experiment. It is truly a great experiment. Right. And proof that you don't need to take 1200 pages to do a literary experiment. Not at all. Nameless narrator, who's a woman, her partner, a man, also nameless. There are very few specifics. So you know how I describe Department of Speculation is actually, I think it was Atwood who had used this word in Cat's Eye, shatter pattern, where a piece of glass falls and it shatters. And then somehow it's shattered in just the perfect pattern. It is art in that abstraction. Mm -hmm. It's like exquisitely jagged. Department of Speculation is like that. They're like these vignettes from this woman's life, which on one hand, I don't think you can actually string together into a chronology, even if you tried. But the point is, you don't actually need to. You know her. You know how she's thinking. You know what is going on in her life in a very mysterious kind of way. It's a sensory novel rather than a structural novel in that sense. But at the same time, it's structured with origami precision. Fantastic. And I presume that's the kind of thing that, again, a literary artist might not want to sustain over yeah. 800 pages. I mean, for all that, there are novels that are written in one sentence, right? Isn't <laughs> yeah. that Duck's yeah. new report yeah. that I'm yeah. thinking of? Yeah. That exactly. One sentence and it's... And it goes on for like 600 pages that's or something right. like that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Go for it. Fantastic. Honestly, I haven't right. read it yet. Maybe that's what I'll take to prison. <laughs> it just, just seems like slightly frustrating. Yeah. What is that thumping noise? After it is. <laughs> so Priya Nair against the cell block. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, that's me grinding to base discography. Oh, sorry. The other one that I was thinking of when you mentioned A Single Man, not because of subject similarity or anything of that sort, but because both books just sort of stunned me with the beauty of the prose. 
I'm thinking of The Membranes, which is a translated novella from Taiwanese literature from the 90s by Chita Wei. I can't remember if we've talked about it on the Lip Pickers before, but I know that it's one of the books that you've talked about to yeah. me, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe over breakfast, that I've been most <laughs> struck by. When I read it a couple of years ago, I just could not get over it. It's translated by Ari Larissa Heinrich, and it was originally written in 1994 or 5. It's a science fiction novella. It's uh, set in the future, 2100. You're hearing someone who is a dermal scientist slash carer. Like, essentially by 2100, the earth is scorched and everyone lives underwater. And of course, you can't live underwater. So you have these skins that you have to wear all the time. It's called the M-skin. And Chitawe's protagonist called Momo is somebody who fixes these skins and renews them and stuff like that. It's a slim little book and it's like one twist after another. Every time you think you've got a handle on what's going on here, it turns things around. And sitting in Taiwan in the 1990s, he was able to craft a story that predicts things like fitness trackers today social media saturation, surveillance technologies, the question of cyborg labor and, you know, artificial intelligence. It's also an exploration of queerness, of transness. It's so prophetic in many ways. But the thing is that all of these insane ideas are in just exquisite prose. So when you're reading, when I was reading at least, Half of the time I was like, how beautiful is just this sentence before then having my mind blown by what this sentence means for the story and the themes that it's exploring, which is how I felt while reading Isherwood the first time as well. Right. And there's clearly a connection with the queerness, mm. with the dubious surviving into a future. Yeah. I have to say, like anyone who has read Isherwood or Chitawe will rather at this point be like, excuse me, what? Because they are very different explorations of queerness. But yes, nothing is a monolith, guys. Human experiences are varied. It feels like my childhood was stamped by the mark of really fat books. And I'm now only in this conversation with you realizing in retrospect that this abundance mm. of the 80s and 90s really came about as perhaps a kind of reaction to the abundance of the global economy, mm. which was going great guns for some people in those decades. Mm -hmm. After a generation of getting used to the idea that you weren't deprived anymore. Yeah. But I also think it was a pushback against both modernism and a kind of post-war realism mm. that found its voice in these very slim, attenuated kind of literary experiments mm. to go all out. You know, suddenly the baggy, postmodern, multi-voiced, mm. multiverse kind of book was back. And everyone from Salman Rushdie to David Foster Wallace took that as their heritage. I've read essays by writers saying that they feel that as writers of small novels, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily recognized as yeah. having the heft yeah. that you need to make your mark on the global literary order, which may be true. But there is something in there that also strikes me as fundamentally gendered. Mm. Even though we've just been talking about Lucy Elman and Doc's Newburyport and mm. women writing gigantic novels, the small novel, mm. like the short story, feels, and I think for me particularly in that 
time between maybe the 1930s and the 1970s to have been astonishingly innovated on by yeah women writers Agreed, yeah. yeah one of my favorite novelists penelope fitzgerald mm. she's written one novel that maybe goes up to 300 pages and it is such a departure from the rest of her work right i don't think she's written another novel that goes beyond 200 maybe 210 pages mm. and there's something over there that feels modest perhaps mm. for lack of a better word mm. especially to people who are trying to be immodest no yeah if there's a fitzgerald novel that you would recommend as a gateway drug which one would it be the gateway drug for most people is the one that is perhaps her most celebrated it's called the blue flower mm. and it's set in the 19th century she did write some historical novels but also some contemporary ones contemporaneity for fitzgerald was 20th century england the blue flower is set in germany hey. as it happens there we go <laughs> it is the really tragic comic story of this young poet hmm. later known as novalis very famous hmm. german romantic who falls in love on a visit to friends with a 12 year old hmm. and it's deeply absurd and deeply silly and it will move you to tears and it will make you laugh very very elegant but that wasn't my gateway drug and it wouldn't be the thing that i'd choose hmm. the book that i think of as prime fitzgerald is called the beginning of spring Ooh. it's russia before the revolution a miserable englishman is you know stuck in moscow he runs a print shop hmm. and one day his wife ups and leaves takes their two small children with her and then sends the two children back while refusing to come back herself oh. and this is just about what happens oh, in the interim yeah again really gloomy but hilarious mm. and elegant in a way that i can't begin to describe yeah i was just thinking when you were saying about women writers writing slim books taking so much time to get this sort of respect they deserve even though i think when white sagaso see came out first I don't think it was given that much attention. Yeah, I feel like Jean Rhys has generally been even though she has a fan base that's yeah. a fan base. She's really been Yeah, marginal. I think it yeah. took a while and it took feminist academicians and readers to be excited by what she was doing to classical literature. And today I don't know whether White Sagasso see feels as necessarily radical. because White Sagasso Sea was published in the 1960s if i remember correctly late 60s ish is when it came out before the 70s for sure i think it's around the 80s actually that it starts getting recognition and since then there's been a very robust tradition of women writers picking up minor characters and rewriting stories from their perspective. So mm. White Sagasso Sea for those who haven't heard of it or haven't read it is the story essentially of Jane Eyre but from Rochester's first wife's perspective. Bertha. Yeah, who has the name Antoinette in uh, White Sagasso Sea. And Antoinette is a Creole heiress and so basically Jean Rhys sort of excavates Antoinette's story from details and then builds on it. It's just so exquisitely done and I think one of the reasons why this idea of the mad woman in the attic has since become such an influential idea but it wouldn't have taken this long if it wasn't a woman author writing it I think. And if the book had been fatter I think it would have helped her get recognition yeah, sooner for sure. Yeah, acquire a reputation. Yeah. It's hard not to see the 
turn towards fat books as yeah. precisely that, like kind of a signaling to male buyers of books in particular that, hey, literature hasn't become totally feminized. Because you know? the fact is that men have been writing slimmer novels for a very long time without anyone turning around and saying to, for instance, Oscar Wilde, why aren't your plays fatter? And Oscar Wilde also reminds me of the fact that literature is political, as if we've mm. ever forgotten about that on the Olympicas. <laughs> and I do think that there is a kind of really organic connection between the slim volume and mm. the pamphlet, the chapbook, mm. the manifesto. And, you know, that's one thing that I've been seeing in Indian publishing lately as well. I want to say the last slim volume that I read earlier this year from India mm. was an English translation of the Kannada writer Devanura Mahadeva's screed on the RSS. So it's very much in the tradition of non-thin book, which is the translation of Govind Pansare's speech, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Shivaji yeah, yeah. Kornata, yeah, yeah, who was yeah. Shivaji. It's a retelling of history in a way that would make sense if you were telling it to people at a political rally yeah. or just to people around a fireside. Yeah. Very, very conversational. And it's Devanura Mahadeva writing about how to think about the RSS. And Western has started bringing out a series of slim volumes under the heading Literary Activism. Yeah. Arvind Krishna Mehrutra's book of poetry, The Book of Rahim, was the first. I mm. haven't seen that yet, but I've mm. just got my hands on an essay by Amit Chaudhary called On Being Indian, which is his response to the citizenship protests and yeah. everything we have been talking and thinking about since 2019. You know, there's that old theory that times of unrest and times of disruption as hard and difficult as they are to live through, they tend to produce incredible works of art and creativity and critical thinking. Initiatives like what Westland is doing, but also like I've had the opportunity. So my day job is working with a film website called Film Companion, which allows me to see a lot of movies that no one will get to see because they just don't have commercial prospects, mm. right? They're independent films, like truly independent films. People who are making incredible stories on what you and I will spend if we had lunch out for a week. You know, like insane works. And the kind of churn and powerful narratives that are coming out from that post-2019 it's so hopeful to see, you know, despite how awful everything is and everything is going to hell, yes. Yeah. But there is resistance and there is art. And to misquote Bertolt Brecht, there are songs in the darkness. And I think the pamphlet and the chapbook push back against an instinct that we've talked about earlier when we have talked about the situation, mm. which is the sense that many writers have that they are writing for the future, that essentially they're maintaining an archive. Mm. But when you put out the manifesto, the pamphlet, the chapbook, you're putting it out for the now. You're trying to call someone and say, sit down, give me an hour of your yeah. time. Yeah. The presentness of it is yeah. so powerful, right? That's absolutely right. And again, this is something that activists have used time after time, right? Feminists we've talked about mm. on the Olympicas before, from Valerie Solanas mm -hmm. to Vishini Despont, Despont yeah. have put out slim volumes and they've become rallying calls for people. So there's power in, in that sort there of thing. There is tremendous power and in spirit and in memory of that power, I'm thinking of a book that really made a lot of Indian publishing and readers sit up, The Adivasi Will Not Dance. For those who haven't read it, it's a volume of short stories that are set in Jharkhand. It's Santhals, as far as I remember. 
and it's written by Hansda Sarvendra Shekhar. And at the time that it came out, it sort of exclusively was one of those stories where really the central perspective was of those who have always been kept in the margins of storytelling. It's not like Indian literature has not acknowledged that there are people on the margins, but absolutely no writer had brought them to the center in the way that this volume did in recent times. Yeah, and Savindra is such a glorious writer. Amazing. And I can see something about his sense of humor and his perspective that would really revel in the confines of mm. something short and sharp. Yeah. I have a last question for you, which is do you think the slimness of a volume is a deterrent to an Indian book buyer now? For sure, I can imagine it having been so in the past. Honestly, I think what it really boils down to is this very strange equivalence that we've made in our heads between pricing and slimness. Right. And when we say we, we're talking about like, you know, the posh bookstore buyer, yeah, yeah. not the book fair buyer who goes to buy books about things they care about anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're browsing in a bookstore and you see a slim volume and it's 600 rupees, I think there's a resistance. It's a very ridiculous and irrational resistance because 600 rupees for the demographic that is showing up at a bookstore and buying, the last movie you watched probably was a 600 rupee ticket if it was at an IMAX theater, for mm. example. We're used to the idea of books being a more affordable pastime, I think, than they seem to be when you have a well-produced book, which today, irrespective of fatness or thinness, will be at a certain price bracket. But I think it's changing simply because of the number of people that I hear of who are looking for quickish reads to get over reading slumps who want something that will not take a long time to finish. Right. And I suppose that's what experiments like Kindle Singles mm -hmm. were about. And experiments we will continue to see in the future will be about. Yeah. Let that be a call to action for you, dear reader, to go out and buy a slim volume today so that you can enjoy reading it. And it will hopefully encourage writers out there to write shorter books so that we can read more of them. Shorter books that stay with you for a longer time. And with that, you were listening to The Lit Pickers. We have a bunch of older episodes, by the way. A lot of the books that we've recommended in the past are actually in the slim volume range. So you should hear our previous episodes. I'm Dipanjana. I was sitting with Supriya and we'll be back soon. Bye. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, Tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran Dipanjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks. Keep listening.